This is Amplify, a mini-series from the True North Collective podcast, aiming to highlight unsugarcoated conversations with everyday Black and Indigenous people of color on what it means to be yourself in the realities of our current system. Welcome to episode one of Amplify. Thank you for being the first person to be a part of this conversation in this series. It means the world to us and to me that you are willing to share your experience of authenticity in these current times. So thank you, first and foremost. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I just wanted to just ground everyone in the space of this is going to be, actually, you said it best the last time we talked. This is going to be an imperfectly perfect conversation as we explore what it's like to actually be yourself in a society, in a system that is like working against you. And so I'm really honored and privileged to be able to hear your, your story, hear your truth, and to learn and uh, hopefully create a conversation that can allow all of us to learn how to have more uncomfortable conversations and be more honest and get to know the people around us instead of just making um, assumptions that don't actually move us forward. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. So welcome, Erica, to Amplify. Thank you. That sounds great. I love the first time. It's like, yes. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's exciting. So um, I'm going to introduce you and then I'll give you some space to just share a little bit about yourself. Um, So Erica and I met... Oh my gosh, I don't know, 20, I don't know, over I don't know five either. years ago. It, it was a while mm-hmm. ago. We were both in Vancouver uh, working for Lululemon, and um, she just stood out to me as this person who literally, I felt like you're like, I'm going to do this, and then you, it happened. Like, you're just mm-hmm. this person that, like, has an energy of, I want to be around you, and because things are going to happen. like cool, good, powerful things are going to happen. And we didn't get to spend a ton of time together, but I've been able to, because I left pretty quickly after you um, were hired, but I followed your journey and watched you continue to just find things that were important to you and step into them fully. And one of those things has been yoga and watching you really blossom within that community, um, bringing what you do and who you are so well to that space has been um, really cool to see. So um, Erica Jones is who we have on the podcast today. She's a diversity and inclusion professional. She's been doing that for uh, about 11 years and uh, she's really collaborating with key stakeholders, developing strategies that will allow people to sustain inclusion behaviors, increase diversity, and kind of the gamut around that as it continues to evolve. Um, She is passionate about bravery and really making sure that all people have resources that allow them to thrive uh, wherever they are. She's a Lululemon ambassador. Uh, She's a yoga teacher, like I said, and most recently the founder of Yoga Coalition, which is an alliance for Combined action, bringing inclusion, equity, and diversity to the yoga community. So, welcome to Amplify, Erica. Welcome. Thank you. Yeah. So, Thank why don't you. you tell us a little bit about you and how you how you got to where you are today? Well, first of all, I will tell you a little bit about me in this little nutshell, like the work from home with an animal. 
So my dog, we went on a long walk to pass out. And then all of a sudden, it's like she knows. And so if you see me moving, it's because I'm getting her to stop. Her name is Whitney. Um, after I really love Whitney Houston. I shouldn't say after Whitney Houston because that seems insulting to talk to a human. And um, so she is, yeah. So um, I'm going to try to distract her right now through this. I thought my plan was really great of tiring her out. Um, a little bit about me. I am originally from, born and raised, um, went to school in Nebraska, University of Nebraska, and I've lived in six different states and places, which have been really great. Um, from, hold on just one second, uh, from New York, from Chicago to St. Louis um, to Columbus. Oh, gosh. I'm so sorry. <laughs> my dog does Hold it all on. the time. Everyone, all so the listeners sorry. are used to this. Oh my, my dog gosh, barking. This is, I know. Well, this is okay. This is perfect of like inclusivity, right? This is not the I most ideal audio things or anything. And I'm just here. We are accepting people and their mess. I just gave her a jar of peanut butter, the whole jar, <laughs> yes. the whole container. Gosh, it's not great. She'll figure it out. It'll keep her busy for a while. Um, <laughs> and, um, and lived in New York. Uh, and I start in all over. I worked with Abercrombie and Fitch for 15 years and um, did various roles there and really fell into diversity and inclusion You know, I I didn't major in it. I majored in journalism um, way back in college decades ago. And when I think of the synchronicities of that to what I'm doing now, um, it it all blends so beautifully because what I really loved about journalism, number one, I thought I, you know, I was like, I'm going to be Oprah. Like, that's what I thought. And what I loved, I was so inspired by her and her show. Because what I loved was the storytelling of people and differences and how she was able to bring on controversial topics on her show. Like a few that stood out to me was um, the Ku Klux Klan members like on her show and being able to have um, conversations about that. And um, so that in addition to, you know, growing up in Nebraska, it's a conservative state. Um, It's. And, you know, I graduated from high school in 95 and I'm super fortunate for the high school that I went to because it probably, it, it at the time, it was the most diverse high school in the Midwest, um, meaning that we had 40 different languages. Um, we had a gay, a gay and lesbian, like LGBT prom homecoming. And, you know, we were like taught at that time, like, what it meant to be feminist, you know, like we were, it was instilled in us. Like we had ladies in the bathrooms, we had walkouts. Like if we had bells in school, cause we're not like robots, like we can be to think, you know, it was like this activism and, and civic rights and um, social work was like ingrained in us for so long. Um, I mean, yeah, we had, you know, we it's just thinking like every month on a Friday we had, um, like a multicultural club day where it was like we had to learn about different cultures and um, and Native American tribes. And it, it was just amazing. So, you know, that experience when you get that at such a young age, um, you know, when I went to college, it was completely opposite where it was then predominantly white, which it was like such a flip of a world for me. 
where I actually struggled a little bit because um, I was so used to seeing like this person walk down the hall with purple hair, like girls like wearing like I am she, you know, like it was just strange. And then um, so that combined with journalism, like the story of people I felt really is what led me um, into doing this field and this work. Um, so yeah, it's a little bit about me. I love that. Did your parents specifically go to Nebraska so you could go to that school? No, my parents are originally from D.C., so they're born and raised grew up there. My dad went to Nebraska um, to play basketball there, which that was like a huge culture shock for them, you know, like going from D.C., which is predominantly black, um, you know, in the 70s to move and go to Nebraska, like, I was I still am like you just threw a thing on the wall I mean you got a scholarship to play yeah. there so that's how they ended up there but, and you're yeah. they're still in Nebraska yeah they're still in yeah. Nebraska and yeah. then our extended family it's so funny because you know they like DC still home to them and like every time they go back I mean they go back like four times a year and it's so funny because although it's still home for them they haven't lived there in like 40 some years so watching how they get like oh my god there's traffic and you know it's they're so far removed <laughs> from that like dc lifestyle you know yeah um Funny. before i have some questions specifically regarding some instagram stories that i watched of yours that i was just like blown away by that really show exactly what you're saying of how do you tell different stories um in the current environment that we're in um using the current tools that we have. But before we do that, I, every time you talk about being in the diversity and inclusion at Abercrombie and Fitch, that is like, my brain can't compute because I feel like I always remember Abercrombie and Fitch being a place that wasn't that way. So every time you talk about it, Janelle, did that, was that like a thing for you? No? I would say I would very much picture just like white yeah it's surprising to me yeah yeah you know it it defaulted to that right and and it's what most organizations struggle with like a diversity inclusion role right now is probably the one of the most sought out roles for organizations people recruit and hire based on what's familiar to them so did Abercrombie like make that like a standard or propense that like no it became a default, right? So even myself, when I started working there in stores, I started in Lincoln, Nebraska, I recruited my friends, most of my friends were white, you know, so it was, it was like breaking the molds, then one day you wake up and you're like, whoa, this whole thing, you know, is white, where there was like a class action lawsuit. And then there had to be some intentionality. I always say that if you are not intentionally including, you're unintentionally excluding, and that is exactly what happened there. And so next thing you know, it was like, there's greeters, there's all this. And so there was this deconstructing of the marketing, the imagery, and what did that look like? Um, and, and that was like our whole role um, was recruiting and hiring diverse, diverse um, uh, talent and managers, developing training programs to really impact bias of individuals um developing like different ways of recruiting um uh policies um that may have like potentially been exclusive to some and 
to tell you the truth, most organizations are like that. Abercrombie is no different than a lot of organizations out there. They just happen to be one of the hottest brands that people knew. And, um, you know, there's a lot of brands that have done just as worse, if not more than uh, what they've done. You know, when you think about Gucci and H&M and, you know, the list goes on. Um, And, you know, the work that I'm so proud about that was done there is our team was really small and we had an amazing extended support from um, it really impacted like the store, like front facing um, organization, like such support from the leaders and our partners and key stakeholders to really transform um, to get the store to be um, 50% like diverse and walking in the stores. I mean, I still love it. I still shop there. Um, so yeah, it, it may seem like it's a, uh, like, oh, wow. But if you go into most companies still to this day, they all, they all look like what Abercrombie did. Yeah, you're absolutely so. right. You're I mean, absolutely right. And talked about that with us on the podcast. We're like, you know, we've always been very like go with the flow, like people in our life, people show up, we invite them. And then when everything started, um, you know, the conversation started to shift and we were talking about it. It's like, I mean, exactly what you said, Erica, it's just like, well, if we're not being intentional about it, then we are in a way excluding because if I look at my friend group, I mean, there's diversity in it, yes, but it's still a lot of people that look like me. Yeah. And- yeah. I mean, and that's what this whole thing is like brought about, right? It's like, you know, there is like the work of anti racism, there is the work of diversity, there is the work of um, inclusion, all of the inequity. They all have different like things. And that's like, that's been what's really tricky about all of this is, you know, racial justice work is different than diversity inclusion work, which is different than equity work. And so we're blending all of it together. And there is like an intentionality with each one of them. And first of all, like the start of like racial justice work, like, you know, I started the basic level of like the individual, like identifying where they at on the journey. You know, it's very hard to take a person from one and saying, like, calling them out, call out, like there's a difference between call out and call in on racial justice when it's like they're from like a small town in Nebraska and they've never been even exposed or having the conversation. That's a different conversation and a different pathway of journey than versus like just throwing them right into racial justice work. Do I want to do that? For sure. However, what it does it's like it pushes that person away. So how can I call a person out to then call them in to move them along their journey? And I don't think that a lot of people realize that. Um, And, you know, that's kind of what's been really also noisy for me to like really decipher because listen, diversity inclusion professionals have been around for a really long time. Now they're sought after and needed. I think what this is calling diversity and inclusion professionals to really do is to like look at the way that it's been led before and now how to guide people in a way that creates better outcomes. Um, because, you know, there's like all this reading, there's all this stuff and it's like do unconscious bias training. Unconscious bias training, you can do it. We don't know if it has like a measurable outcome, right? So there's like, you can do all the racial injustice training that you can. However, there's like these nuances of accountability um, 
being consistent um, and ensuring that people are getting the experiences that they need in order to have like what they're reading stick. I can read all the books that I want and 70% of like your learning journey is through experiences. So who are you hiring around you that brings up like uh, different point of views? Who are the five people in your circle that you're with every day? If they look like you, think like you, then you have to disrupt that, you know? Um, and I think that that is also the work that's not really being discussed. And that takes a lot um, to untangle. I look at it like a big, huge knot, you know, that needs to be untangled. And we're trying to like put the necklace on perfectly. And not even acknowledge that there's so many knots that need to be untangled. Yeah, there's oh, like I love a... that analogy. I just said that, so I'm glad this is recorded. <laughs> we got it forever. <laughs> yeah. I hear a lot of slowing down in that too, of like yeah. a lot of slowing down. Cause and I'll I'm not gonna throw any, you know, big names out into the, you know, onto the table, but I have seen companies that I'm connected with really scrambling to try and get to the end, like to already be at the finish line. And um, we, we just, I think that's what's gotten into, gotten us into this whole mess is like just trying to be at this like perfect finish line. It's like, we haven't even like put our fucking necklace on yet. Like exactly yeah. your point. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you know, and it's just like, you know, I can share this based on experience. Like, the work that Abercrombie did, it was, they were in a federal consent decree, you know, um, right below affirmative action. So um, that took six years to like really move the needle, um, to change behavior, to change the look of the organization. And there still was like work that needed to be done. So do we have six years? No, but it's a slowdown to speed up like really fast. And I think that right now, um, a lot more people are willing to dive into the work that needs to be done and amplify it quicker. Yeah, there's, um, to kind of bring back my earlier thing, one of the moments that stands out for me after George Floyd was murdered was watching your journey in Minneapolis and that conversation that you had with, um, I think it was the mother-son on the bridge was to me, I, at that point was feeling so like, where do, how, what, what can I do? What can I do? What can I do? And again, I was trying to be at the finish line versus on the step that I was on and being able to witness that conversation that you had reminded me that how this, how I can contribute is by slowing down enough to be able to be in it with the people that are around me have the actual conversation. And so I'd love to hear from you what that experience was like for you. Cause it totally was a game changer for me to witness. So yeah. Before we hear from Erica, we did want to share some audio from the video clip that Rachel just referenced. This is something that will come up quite a bit in our conversation. And we wanted you all to be able to hear some of it to provide some context into our conversation. We'd also encourage you to check out the link in the show notes where you can watch the entire video on Erica's Instagram account. So here is a shortened clip of the conversation that Rachel is referencing, and then we'll jump back into the podcast. 
Obviously, you know, I live right downtown Minneapolis and I'm three miles from like where most of like what you saw on the news um, like happen. So, you know, like imagine at night, like I could smell the smoke burning in my apartment, you know, like I could smell that. So clearly it wasn't going out at night. The next morning went there and I was just, I mean, it was like a war zone. There, there was nothing that could be explained and I know that there were things in other people's cities it's like when you see it and smell it and taste it and I was um I was really taken back because I worked at Metro Transit and the particular area that I was at we had worked on um did a lot of community work and launched this campaign um about kindness and how to like really build inclusivity to mitigate harassment, et cetera. And in this particular area, we um, we did a lot of work there. So I saw the bus stop like burned, vandalized all of them. And that 
that was like a little personal for me. And so as I'm walking and here's where the tools of meditation and breath and yoga um, come into play because I was walking across the street to go look at the bus stop and clearly like filming it. And as I was, as I was, as I was approaching it, just taking a photo to send to my former boss, like, this is terrible. And this man, like, just started saying, like, you did this, or your people did this, or I don't remember exactly, like, now I need to go back and, and do it. Or what did he say? Oh, no, yeah, that's what he was saying in the beginning. He was, like, shouting at me, like, your people did this, you did this, and, like, kind of charging at me, towards me. So I... I was like, well, you know what? I'm going to record this because I was not intimidated by this man. You know, I was not scared of this man. And I didn't record it for like my safety. I recorded it because I felt this overwhelming like power just go through me. Like, like this is how you show people how to be in this conversation. Like something just said that to me, not of a way of like, oh, you're doing this to like get attention. Like this needs to be seen, this conversation, because what's going to happen right now in this conversation is going to be really transformative. Like I knew that in my heart. And so, um, and so we just kept going. And I, I just remember like always in the heightened questions or things like that, like, well, gosh, how do I diffuse this? And I just asked the question, do you think I want this? And he, and like the woman he was with, I don't know if it was girlfriend, mom, I, I have no idea. They, she, she's like, no, I don't think that she's like, no, don't, why are you yelling at her? She did not do this. And he's like, well, I wouldn't think that you would want this. And I was like, I, I live here. I'm sitting here taking a photo of something that is destructive that I care about. So I'm on this bridge with you too. And I don't remember what else we said. And it really diffused the conversation. And then she's like talking to me and, you know, like the conversation really transformed and the sense of, I, I could have either a walked away. And to me, I'm like a little too prideful. Like I knew what he was doing when he said, this is you and your people. Like he was profiling me and a black female standing on this bridge. And I'm not going to give you that easy path, not doing it. So I got in the way there. I just wasn't going to do that. And or, and or I could have responded in a way that was yelling back at him. It's just not who I am. And I remember just, yeah, like taking breath, like four count breath through the whole entire thing. And as I was breathing, he was breathing. And there was this like energetic exchange that really slowed his temper. I knew that he was yelling at me because he was upset. He was hurt. He was scared. Like behind all of that was scared, fear, disbelief. You know, we were just getting ready to open from COVID. Um, and so, yeah, and then it transformed. So. We end up like having all these discussions and I find out they're from Iowa, they're Hawkeye fans. And I was like, oh dear. So then we started joking about that. And then they're Packers fans, which I'm like, 
really? So, you know, I'm a Vikings fan. And, and so it was joking. And, and I, I wanted to give him something after, which I, I shared with him. But his takeaway is that if he profiled me that easy, he now has the behavior of profiling so many other people of color when he walks along the street. And now his work is to not profile someone because that's like now the lens that he has, like with all of the discord that happened, he's going to look at brown and black faces as you're the one that destroyed this. You're the one that did this. And so I, I, it took him a while to understand what I meant. Um, and then, you know, the woman that was with them helped explain that. And that, that was the conversation. I think I was also really empowered by that conversation because, you know, when George Floyd happened, like that morning, I was at my parents in Nebraska and I really don't watch the news, but oh, well, I do. And I watched the news that morning. What I was really struck by was like Amy Cooper, like in Central Park and how she called and made the false accusation towards a black man, strangling her dog, doing all that. And I was like, why did she need to go there? Like in my, in your whole mind, that was like erratic behavior. Like I, you know, just to like think that you're going to call the police and say, I'm going to say that there's a black man. There was like something traumatic within her that she projected that onto somebody else. And he happened to be black. And it could have been because he was black. I don't know. So there, that to me, I just had that moment on the bridge. Like I was like, this is an Amy Cooper moment right here. And because to me, I was, well, then of course, Amy Cooper happened. Then like hours later, we find out about George Floyd. I was so appalled by what happened to Amy Cooper. Because what that was, was showing that we are walking human beings more and more people are walking around with unworked trauma unworked healing unworked um things that they're carrying deep inside of their unconscious subconscious and it comes out in destructive ways anger rage false accusations and so long-winded here long story longer that's why i showed that because people need to see more of that and as a human race society we have to like work on our own shit um because our own stuff impacts other people how we see ourselves is how we see other people how we treat ourselves is how we treat other people so to me, that was the experience on the bridge was that. Um, what I was going to say, just first, I want to acknowledge, um, I know you walked, I heard you say when you walked into that conversation that you, you weren't like, you weren't intimidated, you weren't trying to necessarily get anything out of it, but your, your ability to like trust in whatever that was that came through you that said, this is this is something to record and, and experience and was like so wise and spot on. And the ability for, you know, it's, I think it's easy to say, 
it starts with a conversation, but a lot of, I will speak for myself. I have not had a ton of great examples of how to talk through, and I'm going to say traumatic inducing conversation. So like people who are experiencing trauma or acting out trauma or are experiencing strong emotions, not even just trauma, just strong emotions. Like I've, I've experienced a lot of ways of people exactly like you said, shutting down or fighting back. And that gray area in between, um, the modeling that you were able to put out into the world and you could see in that video, the breath. I didn't know that you guys were breathing together, but I'm like, yep, I know exactly the moment where I could see, I could see it. I could see him calming. I could feel you behind the phone and as simple, we can all breathe, like being able to just, there is, and then to have that new modeling, I just, um, I just, I guess I don't want to underplay how important that was for me. And I know a lot of people that I shared that video with to be able to see how it could be done differently. So uh, honestly, it felt effortless, even though I'm sure that's not how it felt while you were there. Well, I mean, in some ways, I would say that it kind of did feel effortless and a little like, I mean, that's to me, like what I've gained by practicing yoga daily, you know, there's like so much of it that's asana, And a lot of it is really internal. Um, so I felt very grounding, you know, and like finding feet, finding breath, finding like those tools um, from the practice that allowed for that to show up in the conversation. Like that's yoga off the mat, right? Like, and honestly, going into this next election season, that's going to need to be had more with individuals as well. And we always say, you know, not to talk about things like not to talk about this. And then it what happens is it gets bottled up inside. We don't have the conversations and we can have hard conversations. And, you know, someone um, who I admire and really respect, he said to me, I'm not going to tell you what to think. I'm going to challenge you what um, I'm going to challenge you to think. And I, I, I think that when we challenge people to think it rub, it could trigger and rub up something against us. And, and that's the responsibility of the individual to like, really do the work to uncover like what is triggering um and orders when someone is challenging you to think that you can take a breath restore and know that that person is challenging you to think versus taking it personally right like one of the four agreements and um and doing that and uh, and a lot of this a lot of the work in diversity equity inclusion anti-racism is personal work and people don't share that. So right now I find it to be very beautiful um, to have yoga. I bring a lot of it into the work that I do and conversations that I have with people because I can also hear what people are not saying, you know, and like listening. And there is that intentionality of listening, listening to what people are saying and what they're not saying. And then being able to like ask questions, clarifying questions to understand what their intent is, you know, um, because it could have a different effect. And, you know, as an individual who heard something that's triggering, um, taking responsibility to like asking a question so that you can find out what the intent was. And then saying, I heard that different. This is how I heard it. And then being in a conversation with that. And we don't do that. That's really like, cool, the curiosity. Cause I, yeah. I do like, I get so stuck. Like I, 
want to be a part of the work. And then when the conversation or like the comment comes up, I just feel like I freeze and I just don't know what to say. But like you saying that curiosity piece, I'm like, okay, I do that all the time in other aspects of my life. So to be able to apply it to like a conversation on race or when someone says something, you're like, ooh, like that, that doesn't feel good rather than freezing. Cause honestly, that's really what I do. Um, and just like, I don't know, I don't know to say, I don't know to say. And then like, you want to say something. And then I just get in my head and I swirl. I like the approach of getting curious about intent. Yeah. So there's two pieces with that. Um, the first thing is I, you know, uh, when it comes to active ally, allyship, one of the pieces of training that I've done, um, several times and that we created together at Abercrombie was called, um, like the moment of truth. And um, there's three stages. There's a struggler, neutral observer, and there's a champion. Consider the champions also an active ally. And a struggler, they just don't, they're resigned. They don't think that anything is happening, yada, yada, yada. There's a neutral observer. That is the middle. And I always talk about moving the middle. 80% of the people are neutral observers. They see something that's wrong. They know that it's wrong. They may not act on it. They believe in like the right thing. But yet what they're faced with is, like anxiousness, fear, you know, getting called out, um, and being the only one. And then you have to cross the line into being a champion or active ally where you're being consistent. The behavior is really consistent. And so, you know, you jump and cross the line. So I always like to look at it as like a puddle. Like imagine that you're walking down the sidewalk, you see the street, and there's a massive rain puddle. You have nowhere else to go. So if you're the struggler, you're like turning around and just like gonna go. The neutral observer is like, I gotta get there. I know I, I know that this is the shorter out. And so I, I like I either jump or I just stay here. Or I just stay at the puddle. So the neutral observer could just stay at the puddle. The ally or champion, they jump over the puddle. So it's like, what do you need to do just to jump? What happens? You splash in the puddle great. Now your shoes and socks or what? You can change them. Who cares? Change your shoes, change your socks, or guess what? Maybe you have on rain boots and nothing got wet. Meaning if you change your shoes and socks because they got wet, the conversation went bad and you can change them and start the conversation again. Or if you had on rain boots and your feet did get, get wet, that means you created a whole story yourself and the person wasn't even thinking that, or they're open to the conversation and you could have the conversation. Period. So jump There's over the puddle. Definitely did you just, storytelling. Did you just come <laughs> up with that on the spot? I did this week. <laughs> it's beautiful. You're amazing. I did this week in a conversation <laughs> with someone. I was doing like intercultural development inventory. So I'm certified in doing that where you like plot people on a continuum and it was a really hard conversation because she wasn't getting it. And I just, that came out of my head. So half the time I do need to record myself because some of the things I'm saying, I'm like, Oh, that makes sense. Um, and it made sense to her. She's like, Oh, so I'm standing at the puddle. I'm like, yeah, you're standing at the puddle frozen because you're overthinking. What if my socks get wet? What if my shoes get wet? Then I'm wet. Then what if I get cold? Then it's like paralysis analysis, let it go. It's a good one. I do that hiking all the time where I'm on the rocks if I'm jumping over a river and I will get stuck in my head on the rocks. So very applicable. And yeah. <laughs> like, and this is why we, my life. 
Yeah, and this is why we are where we are. Because people stop right when they know that we should keep going. And what did all of the leaders do before us, like Martin Luther King, John Lewis, Malcolm X? They kept jumping. This is like a revolution. You know, um, it's, you know, this happened in Minneapolis and it, and it probably needed to. Minneapolis is like, they call it, you know, flyover state. There's, it has a state with the most racial uh, inequities, same as Wisconsin. And it needed to happen here. And um, because it, and it created the largest protest around the world. And um, it, it really is waking people up. Like you're on the, like you're there and we haven't jumped. Our generation has never had to jump. We've had things handed to us. We've had things like brought to us. The biggest thing that we've seen, right, is LGBT rights and the Me Too movement. But what have we actually done? Everyone before us did those things, right? Integration of schools, voting rights. Like what, you know, like the biggest bill that we'll be able to celebrate is the Marriage Equality Act. Like that is a thing of our time. But think of all of the other desegregated things that happened, you know, 1920, like that was before time. So this is a call of a revolution for us to jump. You know, we have the baby boomers, we have millennials, and the baby boomers are now getting ready to get outnumbered with millennials and zennials, the zennials, which are like 18 to 24. And then now there is this distinct group that's really beginning, like Gen X myself, which is Zennials, which is very similar to Millennials. Like we have a responsibility and we've been having things, like we've gotten really lazy. Yeah. We've gotten comfortable. We've gotten complacent. We've generalized a lot of things. And it's time for us to get really specific about the things that we want to see change. Mobilize and galvanize people and have turn a revolution into action, period. Yeah, and I'm gonna share embarrassingly as with that analogy, I will say for myself, not only am I standing at the edge of the pond, but I'm also looking around to make sure the people I've deemed I, that I seek approval for, like, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? And it's like sitting here acknowledging that in myself is like, ugh. But you're right. It's like, I need to fucking choose to jump because I believe it's time to jump, not because somebody else is telling me to do it. Yeah. So that is also part of neutral observer where it's called pluralistic ignorance. So they, they don't think they have to do something because someone else is going to do it. So if we think that someone else is going to do it, nothing's going to get done. Right. And there is a way of calling people in to help execute the things that get done. Like, and look, that's even for myself, like, and that's how the yoga coalition started for like years and years and years. I've always wanted to teach yoga over 10 years. I never did. And I never really knew why, why, and I kind of knew why, and I couldn't articulate it. And then I met Chelsea Jackson, actually, when I was at Aviva and we had lunch together and she shared with me her story. Like, I don't see Brown, you know, she got her doctorate at Columbia. She went to Spelman and she was just sharing, like, there's not brown faces. Like, this was like six, seven years ago. And she's like, I, you know, they wanted me to come for, um, uh, what's the festival? Hello. Um, oh, yoga festival. Seaweeds. Wonderlust. 
Wonderlust. Oh, Wonderlust. Wonderlust. She's like, no, until there's more brown people and you don't market it. Yoga journals never had that. So she's like, there. And, and then I was like, wow. What she said, and I just started crying, is like, my whole world is white, not good or bad. And I was, and I am doing diversity and inclusion. I know about it. I also went to a really diverse high school. So I'm really conscious of it. And I, however, it, it was so ingrained in me that it was like this whitewashing that the reason I didn't teach it is because I didn't see anyone that looked like me. So that subconscious barrier took me out. And I am not the only one. I'm not the only one. People oh, will so self-select them. So imagine like a female, right? So think of like the top Fortune 500 companies, predominantly men as CEOs. What is it? I think there's like two or three women. Do you think that it, women think that it's achievable to be a CEO? No. But if, if it was like 50% and it was equitable and there was parity and 50% of the women, absolutely. Kamala Harris, like now all these brown girls are like, I can be the vice president. You know, when like all of these things, like you see yourself, you're like, oh, I can do that too. Yeah. It was kind of like there was this Broadway um, actor. She, I think she was in like um, Wicked or something and she was disabled. She won the Tonys and she did an award. And then this kid, his mom was filming and this kid sitting in his wheelchair that had the exact same thing. He's like, she looks like me and I can win the Tony too. So I say that is like, this is really disrupted mine. Like I'm always standing on the edge of the puddle. And so finally, when this happened, I was like, I am jumping. This is, you know, I'm living in Minneapolis. It's white as white can be. Same with Nebraska. I go to every single studio. There's not a great, there's lack of diversity. And I shouldn't have to go to one studio, be this one studio to like to see the one brown person because I don't know if that one brown person even teaches a really good class that I would like I don't know it should be integrated in every studio so yoga coalition birth you know um it was Minnesota yoga coalition we transformed transitioned into yoga coalition so there can be chapters all over and our, the main goals are number one is to provide training to brown and black people we will have a training um to get more people certified in teaching yoga because like the more that you get the people into the spaces a lot of the microaggressions and things won't happen because the work will begin to happen because you've diversified your your space you know and like the anti-racism training may not need to happen because someone would call you out on something when it is happening um and it is to create educational program or educational resources and a database of uh broad and black teachers um so that if you don't have the person in your studio call them into your studio and then essentially like a a toolkit or an audit that we can like look at studios and then say based on these things that the studio is doing with their marketing i mean i i can open up social media and go to like six yoga studios here and literally all I see are white women. It's marginalizing men. It's marginalizing age. It's marginalizing people of color. And I'm, I just am like, at this point, I call myself a compassionate disruptor. I don't care anymore. Like, cause we can't keep getting the same result. It's just insanity. So I will, I'll, you know, like say it. And that's what's giving me the courage. Cause now that I've jumped over the pedal, 
it's consistent. And then also bringing transformational growth for kids. So I'm having a retreat um, because now we have this generation, the I generation, like the 13, 14, 15, they've experienced COVID and now they've seen racial injustice and, and racial strife. And, you know, I have nieces and nephews around in that age and they're all biracial. And I know that the questions that they have, the feelings that they have, there is a way for them to now like unlearn and relearn that transformational growth. So if they're gonna be the next leaders, we have to be able to provide those resources for them at a young age um, in order to really be the change that we wanna see in the world um, and get them to discover their voice so that they can use their voice in a more actionable way versus um, looting and um, vandalizing because that is an act of rage and anger um, and how can we get them to protest through their voice and through dismantling policies and systems that have been built for them not to have access or something so that's now that's what we're doing and we're um, you know looking for leaders in other states and cities that want to start chapters in those areas and and you know our the vision is you know, when you say like, oh, this is the best yoga studio. Well, why is it the best? Now there's actually gonna be measurable things that say you're the best because 50% of your marketing has people of color. Your programs, like 40% of your programs are X. The diverse staff of your teaching, like there will be measurable things um, that we can then award and say, we deem you as a studio that is um, equitable, inclusive and diverse. I love it. It's, it's a, it's a lot of, I mean, it's a lot of work, but not too. Cause it's like yeah. what we should, you know what I mean? <laughs> and I feel like it's, I've watched you to me, it seems like it's seamlessly come together because, um, I don't know. It's not, it's not like you're, you're like, I'm really bad at base at like, uh, sports analogies, but it's not like you're trying to like bat for uh, whatever. It's like, it's right there. It's, it is possible. It's like so much more than possible. This isn't like, you know, thinking so far out the box. And so, um, yeah, I'm excited to see how not only within yoga, but how other people can see how honestly quickly you've been able to kind of pull together this, this space and learn like, okay, yoga might not be my space, but this is my space. And so what can I, how can I take learnings from that and actually apply it to this other space. Again, to, to Janelle's earlier point, as we're thinking about this podcast and like being, starting to become more involved in the podcasting world, what, what might that look like? And so I think, um, I just, I really appreciate your modeling because I know it's not something that um, you have to do, but your ability to share so openly is, is um, just one of the most beautiful invitations. So. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. yeah it really is. And I, I, even at Spire, I mean, we had someone that came up to us and like, I don't feel represented here. And as a business owner, like I appreciated hearing that because it is like, sometimes it's very easy just to not think about it or acknowledge it. And then it was like, well, would you, I mean, you can say no, but it's like, would you be interested in helping us start that and become like mm -hmm. be a teacher? Um, and that person actually ended up doing it, which was really cool. 
to be able to start to build that change and and become more diverse and more open and allow people to see themselves in that space. Yeah. That's what we wanted, but we weren't necessarily executing on it. So I just appreciated like actually someone bringing it up to me and like calling us out on it and being like, yeah, shit, you're absolutely right. Yeah. Let's do something about it. Yeah. And that's the courage that people now do have and that people are, have to be prepared to respond to. Right. So that it's not um, performative. It's not lip service. Um, you know, you can say that you're inclusive and that doesn't mean that you're diverse and you can be diverse and it doesn't mean that it's inclusive. And so if you're, you have to have both, um, and you have to also be equitable. If those three things aren't happening, then I'll give you the 25%. We're going for the hundred percent It's time, you know, like it's, um, you know, that's where it comes into like, we do have the privileges to make that happen. So. Um, I believe that in heart, all of it. Yeah. But I'm curious how, in my perspective, as I've been realizing just how much within our society, like tells us who we're supposed to be and what's good and what's bad and all this stuff and recognizing just how much that is put specifically on black indigenous people of color. I mean, lots, but, um, what is that experience? Like, how do you, how have you been able to like still be you when everything is telling you not to be you? You know, I just wrote that on my story. It's funny you asked that question. (laughs) Um, Or not on a story, on a post that I shared. Is I think that it was ingrained in me since I was younger. And like joy is always like what I've wanted to feel. There's this thing going around right now too that's called Black Joy Matters because so much of what you see in the news and stats are about the disparities of Black people with health, with diseases, Black women and birth rate deaths, the highest, like all these things. And I think that I really owe it to my family, like my parents and grandparents and you know, it's like, you know, you don't really know your parents and they're like, or your grandparents, they never really tell you like their story, but they always like one grew up in a church. So like faith and God like led that. So that was a deep rooted thing. And they always wanted it. Like it was never, I remember my grandmother just always saying, always be the leader and never be led. And always be the leader that others will follow. I mean, she said this to me like every year, started since the age of seven. I had no idea what that meant. And she did it in a way that, you know, when I think about my grandmother and my parents, like, yeah, my mom lived in DC when like Martin Luther King was like assassinated and there were riots and all that. So like their whole experience, they never really shared that with us. They never really shared the like segregated things with us. They allowed us to experience the world in a new way, in a way of like possibility, in a way of joy, in a way of, um, and so I think I had this invisible I think I just had a cape on, like this Superman cape 
superwoman cape of, you know, who cares? Most of my experience that I, that I don't, I sh I've begun sharing a lot is actually more traumatizing from black community where I was, you know, born and raised in Nebraska. I was called a sellout, you know, and I, it was just like young girls, like trying to figure out their way. But it was like, most of my friends were white in high school and, or just all through when I high school, I was captain of cheerleading and track. And, you know, most of my friends were white. And so like girls would bully and say, oh, you're like a sellout because I was like getting good grades and doing all this. My dad's like, well, they're the ones that are sellout if they're not doing that, you know? So I think that they just counteracted that. And, you know, I just remember this moment that I like asked my dad, like, why is this happening? And he was like, people are always going to have something to say. And I, I remember just thinking that I was always going to defy a stereotype or I always was going to defy the negative thing. And maybe that wasn't also good because that kind of like drove a lot of perfectionism and success that I put on myself. But now I, I don't feel like I need to drive for that. Like now I'm like, well, I'm making a seat at the table regardless if you like it or not and accept it, period. And, um, and before I felt like it was coming from that place of needing to overprove or overdo it. And it's like, no, I mean, we're living in the U S now where it's the most diverse it will be. And I felt like I had to be like, try hard. I'm like, I'm not trying hard. You need to try hard to get used to it. You know? Um, and so I just like, yeah, I see it as a shield. I can see how it's heavy where I do get very exhausted because you know there is like that black fatigue I get very exhausted by ignorance of people not doing the work and fixed mindset that's where I get exhausted I can be in a conversation with someone have the most heated conversation I would mean I was in a, an extremely heated conversation with Spike Lee the director of Spike Lee him and I one-on-one -on -one in front of 300 students I'm not scared of that I get exhausted when people are so fixed in their mindset and they can't even see that their own personal um, way is in their way. And for me, where I've like worked on that frustration is like being able to add grace and honestly like pray for them. You know, pray that they are put in an experience that's going to change them. Um, and so, well, clearly not harming, but um, so. I, I don't know. I, I think that it was just like always instilled in me in that way, like to be a child that was curious and running around and collecting, inventing. Like, I just think that my parents and family let us be that. And so I, I don't know what that is like. And I'm grateful that I grew up in Nebraska um, and that we, you know, like my parents were in, D or family was in DC because. You know, now that I'm hearing, you know, so a lot of my work too is also hearing black stories, just like white individuals need to, because I, for so long, the only black community that I would allow myself to be around was like my family and like a small close friends that I met through work. Because to me, like the black community was like way extreme and not accepting of myself. And so now I'm reintroducing myself into the black community also with the same individuals that are the same mindset that are like, I experienced that too. 
And so a lot of it, like I just got done doing um, a level one with um, Baron, and um, a lot of that community, a lot of the teachers, like in the South, like the experience of Black America in the South is totally different than in the North. And so I'm really grateful for that because I can hear the, although there's this overarching commonality of Black community, our stories are so different based on our geographical demographic, like our geographical location. And not good or bad, I'm very, very grateful that I grew up in Nebraska, grew up in the North, and every single day I don't walk around in fear like some, and, and, and that saddens me because those experiences are so real and I didn't realize how deeply rooted it was in the South. And, you know, that's why my grandparents probably moved from the South to DC. So all that to say, this tape that no one sees keeps me flying. I love it. You're amazing. Yeah. So inspiring too. Yeah. So I want to make sure, oh, in one word, how do you live your true north? In one word, how do I live my true north? Breath. <laughs> yeah. And, and if people, go ahead. Yeah, if people want to be able to get a hold of you, reach out, learn more about the work you're doing, is there a good place that they can do that? Yeah, Instagram's probably the best. So it's Erica, E-R-I-C-K-A dot Jones underscore. And then in my bio and profile, like there's like links to things. Um, so that's the best. And then for the Yoga Coalition, we're going to make sure that there's a link. So if people want to donate and support, yeah, um, we want to make sure that they have access to that. So we'll make sure to put it in the show notes. Okay, yeah. great. Yeah, and I we're going to be adding that this weekend. Perfect. So Perfect. great. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Yes. Thank you so thank you. much. You're brilliant. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you. Yes, this is great. A great way to start the day. This has been Amplify, a mini series by the True North Collective podcast. For more from Rachel and I, and to be able to leave a donation for our guests coming on this mini series, check us out on the gram at the True North Collective underscore. We think it's incredibly important that everyone be able to authentically live and find their true north. We appreciate your support. Thank you.